Today, let's talk some more about this year and a few fewer decades leading up to it. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Uh, We started last episode uh, with a little focus on the decades prior to the current one, meaning 2014, you know, 2004, 1994, almost lost, lost track of how to, how to count down the tens. Anyway, you get the idea. Going back a decade, all the way to 1954, uh, I explained why we chose those dates and stuff last time. Encourage you to listen to the previous episode if you didn't get to hear it. But we were basing it on this random website's biggest news story of every year since 1950. I'm not even sure when that was published, but we'll create a link for you uh, on, the, uh, on the website so that you can get to it if you'd like to look at it. Uh, but that's where I'm drawing this from, and I'm just taking their source of the news stories and then my personal experience and putting it together to say, it looks like we sort of learned this or went through this transition during that time, and uh, here are the residual effects of that that I see, all to lead up to what I want us to anticipate uh, in 2024, not prophetically, uh, but in a sense of saying, you've you've heard all of these news stories. Now, what are we supposed to think uh, comes next? And so we started in 54 with Brown v. Board of Education in 1964 with uh, LBJ's War on Poverty. But I sort of emphasized the Civil Rights Act of 1964 over that choice. And then 1974, Nixon's resignation, no-brainer as the story of the year for that year. And we talked about, in that case, uh, sort of this transition away from confidence uh, in our government and in political authority uh, to a sense, a lingering sense, a persistent sense of skepticism, of cynicism about leaders and such in government. And you can recognize all of that. Anyway, that's sort of where we left it. And then we got to 1984, and we sort of dropped it and uh, had to come back for the next week. Got a little too long. So 1984, I mentioned uh, the big crisis of that year or the big news story of that year is one I suspect a lot of us don't even remember. I mean, I certainly remember the name of this uh, town, this city in India, but I think most of us probably don't remember the chemical release in Bhopal, India. So I want to come to that one, but on my way to it, and we'll talk about that one in just a second, starting in 1984's big story. Uh, I do want to go back and point out that, uh, and this is on the personal side, I won't, I won't spend long on it, but, you know, at the same time, I'm seeing these news stories happen, unfold in front of me. Nixon is resigning on TV. I'm not talking about the fact that that was two years in 1974 when Nixon resigned. That was two years after I became a believer. So I was nine years old when I became a Christian. And uh, my, you know, my, my Christianity was not, obviously not mature. I mean, I was a nine-year-old and a 10-year-old, 11-year-old. But I mean, it wasn't mature in a spiritual sense either. I, 
I wasn't uh, committed enough. I was starting to read the Bible, but I wasn't really I, was, I wasn't really sold on it and uh, wasn't giving myself wholeheartedly to it. And that changed not too long after that in 1979. So by the time we get to 1984 and this tragedy that happened in Bhopal, India, uh, that was five years after 1979 when I was called to ministry. And I did commit my life to ministry uh, and to serving. And so, I mean, I was preoccupied and I was going to college and all that other stuff, but something turned my attention so that this uh, really significant story uh, just did not uh, weigh me down in the way that it sh- that I'm sure it did millions of other people around the country uh, and around the world, but uh, the way it should have weighed me down and weighed down a lot of people in my generation who I think, I, I, you know, we've just sort of let this one slip. So anyway, the chemical release in Bhopal, India, I actually copied the paragraph out of the summary of the event uh, so that I could give you the details. The chemical disaster, I'm quoting from them now, The chemical disaster in Bhopal is still considered history's worst industrial disaster. About 30 tons of methyl isocyanate, an industrial gas used to make pesticide, were released at a Union Carbide Corporation plant, and about 600,000 poor residents of nearby shantytowns, and if you've been in India, you know how that could be. First, that they would have the industrial things built around where the shantytowns are, or vice versa, that the shantytowns would have been built up around whatever those industrial centers were. Uh, It was the same in some communities I was in, where uh, people would build their slums. They called them slums, not my term. Uh, But they would build the slums around, for instance, a a meatpacking house uh, in uh, one of the communities that we were in, uh, in Bangalore, actually. But anyway, uh, so about 600,000 poor residents of nearby shantytowns were exposed to the highly toxic compound. Killed, killed about 15,000 people and countless farm animals, according to Indian government estimates. The calamity also led to a generation of birth defects. And to this day, locals claim that uh, the now abandoned site is riddled with toxic materials left behind by Union Carbide, which was acquired by Dow Chemical uh, in 2001. And in fact, what this, you know, one of the things this made me think of, and I I hate how selfish this is, uh, or self-centered, it's not really selfish because I don't live down there either, Um, but uh, I was, uh, you know, near the Gulf Coast recently and uh, doing, you know, preaching for a church down there, and we drove around a little bit and saw a huge Dow chemical plant, you know, right along the Gulf Coast, there are some, there's a lot of industrial development, obviously, in the energy industry and the chemical industry. And uh, where we were near this Dow chemical plant, I mean, they were talking about all the safety measures they have in place and uh, the fact the prevailing winds go this way and, you know, so on. They've never had a spill, never had a single uh, spill or any kind of chemicals ever leave the property of the plant and blah, blah, blah. And, I, you know, I was listening to all of that and thinking, yeah, you know, they deal with some pretty deadly stuff in there. I mean, they deal with all kinds of things, but some of it's pretty deadly. And I suppose the number one concern you should have is uh, chemicals. And they were sort of surrounded by poorer areas right there also. And it was like, uh, you know, what do you, I mean, how do you, how do you balance that out? I mean, you, you know, you want to develop and, and maintain, uh, you know, the chemicals that you need in order to function and so on. 
but also you want to keep your population safe. How do you how do you balance that? And it all, it hasn't always been balanced. And obviously, it became a catastrophe in 1984. I mean, more people killed in that industrial spill, well, in that industrial release of chemicals, than in the entire Gaza conflict that we've described for you a couple of times uh, on on this podcast. And so I am, I'm not minimizing what's going on in Gaza either. That's how terrible this is. That's what I'm talking about. 15,000 people killed by this and 600,000 exposed and many of their lives changed permanently. And you heard birth defects in the generation that followed. So many of those lives changed permanently. And that, you know, this is, this is a context in 1984 where well let me let me add let me add another layer to this just this is 2 years before to get into your mind the timeline this is just 2 years before chernobyl and i don't have to explain that to anybody everybody remembers chernobyl the the uh, you know the, the giant nuclear explosion the meltdown the catastrophe that happened in ukraine which at the time was in the ussr and so part of the soviet union that was 2 years later and so, you know, when you when you take that into consideration that that's what was happening in 1984, 5, 6, industrial negligence of any kind, even if the USSR owned the plant, you know, this is an industrial catastrophe in Chernobyl, and it's certainly an industrial catastrophe in Bhopal, India. Um, the, you know, the whole union carbide for India the, the idea of industrial negligence is something worth paying some attention to. You can understand why people would rise up and say, maybe there's something more significant that needs to be taken into consideration about holding companies responsible for what they're doing uh, in order to make the money that they make. And it's not a, it's not like, you know, suddenly we became regulatory, you know, uh, uh, Oh, what's the what's a what's a good word that doesn't appeal to the wrong sense here? Because what I want to say is fascist, but I don't mean it in an offensive sense. I just mean it in an, you know, overbearing, overarching kind of authority. It's not like we became uh, regulatory monsters of some kind. Uh, we we but but here's the thing. Over time, we did, and this is my experience of it now. Again, I'm not documenting this. I'm not trying to prove it out, but I, I think it's just fairly obvious. Even during the years when Ronald Reagan, for instance, during those same years, was deregulating uh, industry, you know, deregulating the airlines and such, and making it so, and, and standing up to unions and stuff like that. Whether you think it was a good thing or a bad thing, me saying standing up to it, I just mean that's how... Reagan would characterize it, you know, just doing those things that promoted the interest of business and industry and sort of protected them from the restrictions that others would have put on them. It feels like that's what was going on overall. And yet, as I look back on the march of history and the direction things have gone since the mid-1980s, what I see is a whole lot more regulation in place than was in place then. And I think it's because regardless of how you feel about the politics of it, people just acknowledged at some point that 
you know, you know, for instance, in the 1970s, Ralph Nader was a big thing. You know, he wrote his book and became sort of famous and he was the consumer advocate and, you know, the car industry is just, uh, you, know, you know, planned obsolescence was a part of industry and uh, the sa- there's, no, you know, unsafe at any speed was the title of his book. And if you don't remember Ralph Nader, that's who he was. He ran for president for a bunch of years, and but he was always fringe, you know, he was always... A little on the on the uh, I, you know I don't know out 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 of the he's not really playing ball with everybody else you know kind of thinking I think when we got past thinking of this as just you know these are just expressions of regulations that Ralph Nader would want but no sane person could live under that and started realizing that companies are not always going to act in the interest of the people who are around them and. They do need somebody to hold their feet to the fire and make sure things are safe. And even to this day, looking back just a couple of years ago and saying, yeah, we, of course we want the energy industry to prosper and, and we want them to make money because we want to have good energy and we want to have it affordably and we want it to be motivated by uh, the market and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, when the temperature dips to minus seven, we'd still like to have natural gas. So how about some regulations to make sure somebody's keeping their facilities up to date and safe and able to function when we most need the energy and so on. And yet we've also seen the pushback against that. And so my, and and that pushback is really what I wanted to get to, because the point is we did in some ways develop a mentality as a people that was more acquiescent to greater regulation we just accepted it. Sometimes you need regulation. Sometimes you need someone to be testing the chemicals to see if they're giving birth defects to people. Sometimes you need to make sure that energy plants, facilities, or chemical facilities are actually safe. Sometimes you need to make sure a car actually doesn't kill all of its passengers just because it gets rear-ended, by the way, which was a completely exaggerated story about the Pinto and so on. But the point is, as a, as a public, we sort of accepted that idea of greater regulation. At the same time, that's a lot of pressure on business and industry, and they'd like to push back against it. And so would the people who make a lot of money in those businesses and industries. And so at the same time, through the 1970s and 80s, that we're sort of reverting to this small government approach to conservatism, which you can go back and listen to the last episode to hear what I'm talking about with that. you know, the, the, the transition away from a Richard Nixon type of conservatism toward a Ronald Reagan type of conservatism, toward libertarian thinking, as opposed to simply traditionalism or something like that. Uh, all of that, you know, contributes to the sense that still persists today, that we just don't want the government to be too big and we don't want them interfering with all the things that are going on uh, in business because business is where money comes from and money brings prosperity and happiness and it makes everybody else better off and so on. And it does make everybody else better off if we have more money in the economy. That's that's great, but not if you're spilling the chemicals into communities of 600,000 people, Right. And so I I know I'm talking about India and I'm talking about something that happened 40 years ago, but I'm saying there is something to be remembered about the balance that's necessary between wanting to limit government's scope and realizing that into any vacuum, some source of power is going to rush. And so where you pull government back, corporations do step in. 
it's not just a, a free-for-all for every individual citizen to exercise their liberty now that the government has stepped back. That's just not the way the world works. And I think what things like uh, the Bhopal spill and a bunch of other stuff made us realize was that it's it's not just one way or the other. Either we have government crushing free business or we have business doing whatever it wants because that's best for everybody. It's not that. It's not just government or business. It's the reality that we need businesses to succeed and we need people to prosper. But at the same time, we need them to be accountable and responsible with the resources that they have and with the resources that they legitimately develop and yet still owe a responsibility to the community with. So uh, that, I think, starting in 19, and I'm just saying in my, in, in the way I experienced it, you know, started to have some foothold, even among those of us who are li more libertarian in our leanings, and I am thoroughly more libertarian in my leaning, there's still a respect I have for the restrictions, for the, for the bureaucrats that get in their car and drive down to a business that's just trying to make money and keep their employees satisfied and keep their customers satisfied, that drives down there and says, look, if you don't seal up this natural gas pipe, I'm going to have to shut you down. And your people might lose their jobs. So get it fixed or you're going to be shut down. I know that guy's a nuisance, but I sort of don't mind. It's the same thing I would say when fire inspectors go into a church. I think it's a nuisance when they say, you're not going to be able to have your children on this floor of the building, or you're not going to be able to. You can tell I've had this experience. But at the same time, I mean, don't the kids need to be safe? Yeah, I mean, and if we're not doing it ourselves, and even if we don't have the expertise to do that particular thing ourselves, then shouldn't we be glad somebody's helping? Oh, so anyway, you get the idea. So there's 1984, Bhopal spill. And also just a, you know, maybe if you don't remember it or don't haven't thought about it in a long time, an, an invitation to go look at the history and remember something really tragic that happened 40 years ago. Here's a, here's a more se severe invitation, 1994. Uh, this one is a lot closer to home for me. I, uh, in, so I, when I was working on my doctorate, my PhD, it was in the 1990s. In fact, I started my PhD work the year after this in 1995. And I wrote my dissertation on moral atrocities, on self and morality in American discourse about moral atrocities in the mid 20th century. And so when I, when, when I was writing that, obviously I covered uh, some genocide stuff, and especially the Holocaust. You know, we talked about the Holocaust in my, in my dissertation. And so, you know, 1994 in Rwanda was a horrible year. Uh, the 19, that, that, that year in Rwanda is like the 1970s in Cambodia uh, or the 1930s and 40s in Germany. Uh, it is just as a horrible event as you can describe. And so the, the uh, news item of the year uh, was the genocide in Rwanda, and, and they should have. I mean, that's the story that everybody should pick out from that year. And so I, I will read you the paragraph uh, as they describe it. For decades, Rwanda was embroiled in a conflict between the country's two major ethnic groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and over a 100-day period, which is just staggering to think of what that 100 days was like, an estimated 800,000 people were killed, killed. Most of them were Tutsis. 
Some were moderate Hutus as well because they just didn't cooperate with the slaughter that was going on. And when a Tutsi military group eventually gained control, these were the people who were being slaughtered. When one of their military groups eventually gained control of the country, some two million Rwandans fled to nearby African nations, creating a different kind of catastrophe. And in 2008, three former Rwandan officials were convicted by an international court uh, of organizing the genocide. And so if you, and if you, by the way, if you want to know more about the genocide in Rwanda in a way that you can digest, but is also poignant, uh, the movie Hotel Rwanda is, is the thing. I mean, it's, it's a really powerful docudrama. And, uh, you know, Don Cheadle is the guy in it. He's the, he's the guy that plays Colonel Rhodes in Iron Man 2 and 3. He's the guy that took the other guy's place, right, in Iron Man, if you, if you know him. So it's, it's I'm, and I'm pointing him out not because I care about him or not care about him. I don't know him. But he's, he's really good. I mean, it's a great movie. But putting the movie aside, I mean, just the things it points out about the reality of what happened in Rwanda is overwhelming. And so, I, you know, just looking it up, there are a couple of things that I, I think, uh, you know, would help you put it in context. Uh, for instance, you know, when I, I've talked about the Nuremberg trials here, read a book recently on the Nuremberg trials, and so I've, I've brought it up a few times. This uh, international court uh, that finally, after genocide was finally defined as a crime that could be committed, Nuremberg wasn't about that. Nuremberg was about those particular criminals and what they did. Uh, in Germany, creating war, you know, committing a variety of war crimes. This crime of genocide, uh, the first conviction by any international court for the crime of genocide that was finally defined after, after World War II, uh, happened in 1998 as a result of what happened in Rwanda. Uh, a tribunal judged Jean-Paul Akeyisu uh, guilty of genocide and crimes against humanity for the acts he engaged in and oversaw while he was the mayor of a Rwandan town. And he wasn't the main guy. In 2008, there, and then there were three people who were convicted then. In 2008, one of the guys that was convicted, there were three Rwandan officials convicted in 2008, was Theonest Bagasora, and he's the one who's referred to as Rwanda's Himmler. Uh, so you can imagine, and I, I can't even fathom I just don't know the journey, you know, none of us do, but I can't even fathom the journey a person goes through, a human being goes through to arrive at a place where they say, yeah, let's provoke the complete slaughter of the people who are on the other side, but it happens all the time. And I, you know, just going through the 20th century, I have a book on my shelf called, uh, the 20th century, the century of genocide. Um, you know, I, so here's the reason I'm bringing, bringing this one up. This is the thing I gleaned from looking back at 1994 from 2024 to, to see what, you know, what we should have learned or what I hope we learned. First of all, to remember the 20th century or anything in it without acknowledging the genocides, I mean massive losses of life is to misunderstand the whole trajectory or path of history. If you don't pay attention to the genocides that took place in the 20th century, then you miss what's happening in history. Because what, you know, what we have a tendency to do is think whiggishly. And by whiggishly, I mean sort of 
progressively, you know, in the British political sense. Think, thinking progressively, meaning things are getting better and better and we'll make changes. And as we make changes, we'll get closer and closer toward this utopia to which we eventually were bound to arrive, right? Because we're always making things better than they were before. But that's just not a realistic reading of history. More realistically, there is constant, ongoing progress and regress and stasis and change. And there's never a time when all of that's not happening. It's always all happening. So, for example, and this is what was going on in the 20th century for sure, you have huge progress on comfort and prosperity and productivity and so on, economic expansion. And at the same moment, regress on the most important moral test God puts on civilizations. A discussion for another day. We've already had it. You can look up the episodes where we talked about Genesis 19 and how we treat outsiders and why that is so important. But if you ask yourself the question in Scripture, what is the one test God gives to a civilization that makes him say, when you fail this, I will destroy you? And it is how they treat outsiders. It's, it's plain as the nose on your face. If you read the stories in Scripture and how God judges those who reject those who are outside of their own little clan. So I'm saying to you, you know, at the same moment, we're having this huge progress in terms of the prosperity and productivity of an entire civilization in the world. We're moving forward, information revolution, industrial revolution, incredible things have happened. And at the same moment, committing genocides at a level we've never experienced before, at least not with the efficiency that we experienced them in the 20th century. So I'm saying there's progress and regress at the same time. Look, it's even, even just about that particular issue. Like if I take the moral issue of how open we are to outsiders, how willing we are to recognize the image of God, that's what I think the ultimate measure is. You know, if we recognize, that's what we bear. To recognize the image of God in people who come from outside of us, who don't speak our language, don't celebrate our holidays, live, live lives differently, whatever it is. The pro that we have both progress and regress about that very issue right now. There are places and people right now who are better at loving their neighbor and loving strangers as those who are born among them than, than we've ever been. And there are also people who are increasingly using outsiders as pawns and villains more effectively than they've ever used them before. That's what This is part of what you see on social media and what's going on with it. So my point is that a, you know, looking back on 1994 and remembering that this horrific genocide took place in Rwanda, and here I'll say, I mean, something that seems odd, but I'm, I will say it. Thank God for an international court that held the authorities responsible who perpetrated that genocide, motivated and sort of guided that genocide because it's such a discouragement to other leaders who would consider doing the same thing. And there are other leaders who will always consider doing the same thing like is going on right now uh, in other parts of the world. So anyway, I'm saying all of that to say, if, we, if we're aware of that, if we just remember that, 
it gives you a, a greater sensitivity, a, a stronger moral compass and awareness, not after you've had a genocide in your own community or your own culture, but before you have one, when you just start seeing the signs of people turning outsiders into villains or into pawns. As soon as we start using people that way, we should be terrified about the consequences of where we're going to, uh, the consequences of what we're doing, the, 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 the destination that we're going to arrive at. We should be terrified by it. Because if we think we're different, we're just wrong. Human beings are not different from each other in that way. You lead a mob into some fomented state, they'll do whatever's in front of them. They will, and all you have to do is watch crowds to know that that's the truth. Just watch a sporting event and see people lose their minds in those sporting events. People fighting each other, killing each other in some venues. Because of a sports team, that should tell you that we should always be alert and aware to anybody who's trying to make villains or pawns out of other human beings. We just cannot do that. So anyway, the genocide in Rwanda is a, uh, you know, is, is a reminder that we always have to be uh, vigilant not to go down that path. So that's 1994. I know, that one's a heavy one. 2004, you want to shift? Here's 2004. I mean, what have we talked about? In 1954, we were talking about Brown versus the Board of Education, and then going forward, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson's War on Poverty and the Civil Rights Act and Nixon's resignation and a chemical spill in India with 600,000 victims and a genocide in Rwanda with 800,000 victims. And you know what you get in 2004? As the story of the year, the establishment of Facebook, that's 2004. And it's not wrong. I mean, it's just not. In 2001, we had 9-11. We had the terror attacks of 9-11. And everything following that is something about that. You know, it comes to 2002 and 3, it's 9-11 and the Iraq War. You know, that's what, that's what we're headed to. The year after 2004, the big story, this is easy. 2005, everybody would remember. Katrina. It's New Orleans, at least in the United States. That's what we would look back on. But in 2004, they go with the, esta the establishment of Facebook. This is what they turn to. The, and so I, and I get this is right around the time we're talking about, right around the time when we're, you know, headed into the, the worst tsunami, the tsunami tragedy that people would talk about. But it's Facebook. So this is, this is, this is insane until you consider how important social media has become. I mean, that transition, and I'm not saying that if Mark Zuckerberg hadn't done it, it never would have happened. I'm not saying that. But it doesn't matter who does it. Somebody did it, and that's what brought this about. This juggernaut of a, a, an entity that is Facebook, and isn't Facebook and Instagram and threads, aren't they all tied together? Isn't that the same kind of thing? Anyway, when you're looking at those, aside from Twitter slash X now, and aside from, I don't know what the other ones are. They're, they're all cool, I'm sure. They're really important. TikTok and, you know, those other ones. Anyway, whatever they are, I'm sorry I'm not uh, you know, quite engaged in all of them. They dominate people's lives now. 
I mean, it's just insane. Not insane for the people. I mean, it's crazy how powerful social media platforms have become. Uh, it, and so the the odd. So this is what I want to take from that one. The odd thing about that the kind of prosperity that we've experienced in the United States is this. Uh, here, let me let me illustrate this way. I was out evangelizing one night. We were just, you know, we take names and go out and make visits uh, from people who'd come to our church at the time. And I was out with this businessman. I was still a teenager, actually. I think I was 18 years old when this happened. And we were uh, in a street, on a street in Arlington, a prominent street in Arlington, Cooper Street. And as we were driving down it, uh, you know, we saw a couple of BMWs and a, and a Mercedes and such mixed in with all the other cars that were on the street. But it was noticeable. It was like, man, there's some nice cars out on the street tonight, right? Well, back then, that's, you know, we, we thought, wow, this is, this is crazy. Who's got enough money to pay for a BMW and a Mercedes, you know, and so on. And he made this statement. He's, he said, you know, that really makes me nervous because I remember when I started seeing really nice cars around the San Francisco area when I was living out there, it wasn't long until the whole moral situation changed in the city and so on. I don't care about what his judgments were about that or what they were about or what he was picking out of it. But he was making the point that he was making the point. That this was his point. I mean, he was explicit about it. That when there's a certain level of prosperity, uh, people can have a tendency uh, to wander off into some bad behaviors, into some selfish and bad behaviors. And so I, so let me be clear. I'm not saying prosperity is a bad thing. Obviously, the Lord blesses with prosperity. He says that. You know, he wants to give us abundance and so on. So I'm perfectly happy with that. I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here. I'm just not preaching that prosperity is damnation either. The point is that prosperity doesn't have to be a bad thing. However, <laughs> there is this thing in Scripture where we recognize that there is a danger that comes with prosperity. Uh, I love to go to the Ezekiel 16 passage where God is correcting Jerusalem, you know, for all of their um, waste and, and abuses. And he says, as I live, and this is the declaration of the Lord God in the ESV translation, it says it this way, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not behaved as you and your daughters have. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. And this is interesting because we always like to just characterize it as one thing, you know, sexual, uh, some kind of perversion or something. This is what he says. Now, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and needy. They were haughty, and they did detestable things before me, so I removed them when I saw this. So, you know, prosperity brings with it some flexibility, right? That's what it does. And it's a lot like every other kind of technology. I'll mention more about that in a minute. It just gives you the ability to do more of whatever you were going to do, right? And so if you were flexible or free enough to do whatever you wanted to do, now you got the money to do it, you can go do it in a way you couldn't have before, right? So the time and the volume of effort spent on social media, it is an indication. I think I, this is not an insulting indication. It's an indication of the abundance that one generation has provided the next generation. I, I heard a Gen Z person say it this way the other day. They said, you know, we get criticized all the time for being on social media. And we're like, didn't you make the internet and make it possible for us to do that? I mean, what'd you want us to do with it? Not use it? 
the whole point, people complain because we, this is what this person was saying. I'm not quoting them, just giving the sense of it. It's people complain because we use the internet for research, but they put all the stuff on the internet so that we could look it up. What, did they not want us to look it up? Did they not want us to have the advantage of the tools that they created? Well, of course, they're right. It's, a, it's an amazing abundance, prosperity, that one generation handed to the next when they gave them HTTP protocols, you know, and IP addresses, TCP IP, ARPANET. Thanks, thank you for creating the internet. It's a great thing. At the same time, again, it's... So the question is about whether you use something, you know, as a filler for idleness's void or as a tool in the hands of somebody with an intentional life, right? So it's just like every other technology. Social media is just a magnifier. In the hands of the idle, it enhances the devil's workshop. Social media, in other words, in the hands of an idle person, magnifies pride and judgment and disdain and, in general, selfishness. Look at me. You know, I mean, I, don't, I, I, I just saying the words is just silly now on social media. Of course, that's the point. You take a picture of yourself and you say, look at me. This is, you know, what, so in the hands of the idol, of course, that's what it does. Same time, though, in the hands of the productive, it can just magnify their productivity. And there are a lot, I know, there are a lot of people who are blending those two together. I'm not saying it's clear, you know, black and white line between the two. But it's not hard to figure out that the abundance that has been handed down to the current generation has provided uh, a greater opportunity for idleness to manifest itself in new and different ways. And some of those ways are extremely destructive. And you can see that, uh, people tearing each other down in new and powerful ways. Uh, in other ways, it's in extremely encouraging people able to get underneath others and lift them up and encourage them and teach them and provide resources for them. I mean, for crying out loud, you can get on the internet and look up anything you need to do. And there's somebody with a video who will literally walk you through step-by-step step the process of how to put that widget on the specialized door you ordered from the old Czechoslovakia, so that you could install it in your car that you bought from the old Soviet Union. Here's how you do it. It's just insane. Anyway, I'm just saying it's a great thing at the same time that it's a dangerous thing, but that's what wealth does. That's what abundance does. That's what prosperity does. And I think 2004, the establishment of Facebook <laughs> as the news story of the year at such a critical time in American history is an indication of the level of prosperity that we had obtained and are still developing and building on, and of therefore the great responsibility we have. You know, for those to whom much is given, of them much will be required. That statement, that idea that we're accountable for those things comes with prosperity, and we have to be responsible with it. Part of that is being responsible with social media, including Facebook, so you get the idea. So anyway, there's 2004. 2014, you're, you're not going to believe this. You're going to think I'm off by a decade. 2014, Russia invades Ukraine. Ten years ago, 2014, that was the story. There, there, I'll read you the description. Exploiting political unrest in Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin 
orchestrated the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. Now you remember? Different story. Ten years ago, the action, continuing the quotation, incited condemnation from world leaders. Well, sounds brand new, doesn't it? It's exactly the same thing. And a raft of economic sanctions against Moscow, this strategically important and predominantly Russian-speaking region surrounded by the Black Sea, was coveted by the Russians as part of their strategic efforts to check NATO expansion along Russia's western border, which is exactly why they're trying to take all of Ukraine. Now, by the way, 10 years later. Part of the point I would make there, by the way, is the patience of many wrongdoers. Um, there is no, well, they got that. I'm sure it'll be okay. I mean, you would think we would have learned this from Chamberlain in the early 20th century trying to uh, you know, placate Hitler. Well, let's just let this go. You know, it'll be Czechoslovakia, nothing else. Everything else will be okay. And realizing that that's just not the way it works. And so, by the way, you know what the other conflicts going on in that re in 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 the world were in 2014, and I and by I looked this one up just to say what were the biggest Middle Eastern conflicts in 2014, and you know what one of them was in Israel, Operation Protective Edge targeted the rockets and terror tunnels of the Islamic resistance movement, also known as Hamas, and killed more Palestinians than this is 2014 than any previous offensive in the Gaza Strip. Benjamin Netanyahu's government backs settlement in occupied territories and does not support an independent Palestinian state. That's from The Guardian. We'll create a link to it so that you can find it and read about it on your own. And, uh, you know, at the same time, the Arab Spring was winding down and turning out to produce more radicals, you know, replacing moderates with more radical leaders rather than the democracy we all ideal, uh, idealistically thought, oh, it's, it's going to merge into democracy or something. And you know, parts of the world that weren't about that. Okay, so there's, from 1954 to 2014, something to think about. And by the way, the Russia invades Ukraine one is to say, I mean, this is not a new thing. It's not a quirky thing. Uh, and I'm, I'll just say evil. Evil is persistent, and it just keeps coming. And if you were in Ukraine, you'd call it the same thing. So there's all the way to 2014. Our year, the one to close on, right? 2024. What's the point? The, the point for me is simple. Obviously, 2024 is not written yet, so I have no predictions to make. Is the, you know, is the uh, economy going to go up or down? Are the Republicans going to win? Are the Democrats going to win the presidency? Is, you know, I, don't, I don't know any of that. The point is not for us to figure out what the news is going to be for this year, but for us to make the news, right? The point for us, and I don't mean get on the news, please don't do that. The point for us is to be what God created us to be. We're not pinballs bouncing off of history's fixed determinations. We're not just members of a herd of animals following the great leaders of the world. I mean, give another, you know, when you think about that, when you think, oh, I'm just going to follow this person to the end of the world. When, give another consideration to what Jesus says about great leaders. They are the least among us. They are the servants among us. And I'm saying that because we're all so inclined. It's just so hard for me to accept that this is true. I just wish it weren't part of our nature. We're just all so inclined to get into the group, into the herd, into the crowd, 
and just run along with everybody. Stand when they stand and sit when they sit. And it's part of our human nature. There's a good thing about it, respecting the people around you and so on. But seeing that turn into a mob that's willing to go and do things that every single individual in the group would know is wrong in their own conscience if they would just stop and think about it. And that that's so much of what Jesus was doing when he was walking on the earth. I know all of you are going that way, but I'm going this way. Would just one of you follow me? Two? Would you two follow me? And to have even a whole group then, a mob, oh, he's feeding people, oh, he's healing people, we'll follow you, we'll follow you. And for him to say to them, you don't understand what it means. You need to rethink this. I'm not looking for a herd. That should make us give a lot of consideration before we just pile in before some great leader to go wherever they're going to take us. We're not pinballs. We're not members of a herd. We're not actors like, you know, performers in a play. We're actors like those who do more than just move. We're those who were created to act, to choose, and to do were those who were created for a purpose. We were created for a purpose that God gave us and then imbued with an intentionality of our own. We're those who are bound by expectations and definitions and realities, fine, but also freed by practically boundless creativity and equally imbued with a spirit and strength that's produced what would be, I mean, just look at it. It would be, and this world, you could not convince someone before we arrived here that this world could possibly exist. If we weren't already living in it and seeing it with our own eyes, we would not believe you can do the things you can do in this world. I mean, this kind of recording wouldn't make sense. Flying from one place to another wouldn't make sense. The whole, the size of our buildings are absurd. The strength and structure behind them, it's incredible. Our transportation industry is absurdly successful. There's no way someone before the Industrial Revolution, for instance, could have made sense of where we've arrived. And yet here we are. Yeah, we're bound by a lot of things, but we are freed by the creativity and spirit and strength that God's given us. The point, therefore, is pretty straightforward and simple. The point is that, of, you know, of course, 2024 is going to be shaped by 1954 and 64 and all the years that follow it. But more importantly, it'll be shaped by what we do with it, not just by influencing some kind of big news story. I'm going to get out there and make, make, make a splash. It's not the splash. It's just by understanding our own commitments. What do I believe in? What am I committed to? And then living them out. For believers, it's by understanding what God called us to be and then just being it. So what's 2024 going to be like? It'll be like we make it. That's why God put us in it. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. 
Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.